Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and I'm excited to have Brandon Clayman, who's the founder of Birthday App, a fintech app that allows consumers to track, send and receive birthday wishes and guess at the click of a button. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Hi, so happy to be here. This is going to be real fun. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so you you know you you've been into uh, uh, into a couple of startups, but how did you get your journey started in in this crazy world of startups? I mean, I'd be lying to say it didn't you know somewhat pick me. I have this old joke where like uh, you know back when I was a kid, I, like every a lot of founders, I ended up being a you know more difficult child, and you get this moment when you're young where whether it's bad grades or getting in trouble a lot, you have to decide, and it's all subconscious, I think, whether or not they're right in that your skills are not good and like you're, or you believe that you're different in that it doesn't make sense to listen to them when they tell you you don't have it. And so I've been an entrepreneur, literally, you know, whether it was selling baseball cards or selling answers to the tests before they came because you know how to get them. You know, I've always been that, but my official journey probably happened. Um, I was at an idea when I was working in a job and I convinced the CTO of the company that it was a good idea. And we worked from 9 PM to about 1 AM every night. And our rule was if we could get a demo up in, in 60 days, um, we would leave the job and go start and raise money. And we did. And my first company was called What's Good. It did not work. And then ironically, everything after that uh, seemed to work. But I don't think any of my success with those other companies would have worked had I not just, you know, the first one was you just learned kind of how it all works. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, you know, I've I've heard about Lauren and Wolf uh, because you were able to scale it to 150 million dollars. You raised 25 million dollars from you know day one uh, funds and then uh, Vesta Home also, uh, which was led by 8VC. Um, so yeah, what was the experience? You know, building building two two uh, you know totally different startups. Well, um, it was wild. You know, they're both in their way multifaceted marketplace businesses. And I'd be lying if I said, I didn't have much experience with either, with, well, the, with with design that when I first started Laurel Wolf, by the time I got to Vest at Home, which is a home staging business, I obviously yeah. had experience. And so it's, it's more straightforward than it seems. I remember, you know, the first thing we had to do before we raised money was we had to generate demand right? Enough demand, not only to validate our idea, but we right. want to raise money. Uh, we wanted to validate to the investors, this thing they should back. And I remember the first thing we did, which was super clever, I think, was this was in the age of early Facebook. We built easily the first one. We called it a style quiz where we showed you 12 pictures of interiors and you said yes or no. And by the end, we give you a score to tell you what your design style was. And in order to get the answer at the end, you'd have to give us your email and opt into Laura Wolf. And I think we got something like in 48 hours, I guess it's been like 6,000 signups um, for this. And granted, Facebook ads were, you know, basically free back then. But we built this thing that was, you know, would go on to be kind of like a BuzzFeed style culture, which was give people a little 
thing about themselves, but it was off to the races. And so the first thing was just proving demand and kind of catching our customer base where they were. Um, I'd say the same thing kind of happened with, with Vesta was when we started doing it, it was very clear that the staging relationships were owned by real estate brokers because most people didn't buy or own houses more than once or twice a decade. They didn't care who staged their house. They didn't know anything about it. But the real estate brokers were doing it multiple times a week in some cases. And so I mean, you go to the person, the decision maker. And so we built our whole business around supporting real estate brokers um, early on which allowed us to catch a lot of the marketplace. And there were some other real clever kind of uh, activities we did with that in order to really try to capture the market on that. But it's this idea of you figure out who is the person deciding, not even buying, who's deciding how money is spent on your thing and then finding a way to get their attention. That's almost never selling directly. It's almost always, yeah, some version of figuring out, you know, what they do in their daily life and like what they will opt into personally. Mm. Got it. And, 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 you know, what, what made you start about the app? You know, what, 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 uh, it's something which is very different from what you've done before. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a little bit of a uh, crazy person in that I love to do stuff that's like new and difficult. I think I probably would have benefited from, you know, playing the game a little bit on easier mode, but you asked kind of, the question of what I did when I first started the companies, but there's like this funny thing that happens for entrepreneurs that like have done it a few times, right. which is you start with idea on your first one. And then you start with distribution on everyone afterwards. Like you kind of yeah. learn that like, it doesn't really matter how clever your idea is. Everything kind of is how fast you can get this thing in people's hands. And yeah. so one of the things that I have this theory on is this idea of, of like repeating moments, you know, there's the opening up an app every morning. It's almost like ceremony. Like, you know, when you in your bed, when you wake up, there's a ceremony with your phone, you look at all, whether it's Instagram, maybe you look at like the athletic, if you're reading sports out here, the New York times crossword puzzle, everybody has a, like a ceremony they do. Right. And from a purchasing perspective, you have these holidays, Christmas, Black Friday, New Year's, which are enormous moments for connecting with friends, buying things. And I was doing the research. Also, I had built some fun side projects and birthdays were bigger than all these holidays. They were just fractured, right? And I'm sure you remember back in the day with Facebook, you'd see everyone's birthday, you wish them a happy birthday. And so my belief was, well, if I could find a way that wasn't kind of, didn't feel gross, to go and find all your birthdays, put them in a single place, not right. force anything on you other than a reminder that these people's birthdays are coming up. Then I'd build this channel from scratch. Um, and we did it. And holy shit, did people use it like even more than we thought originally. And it was off to the races. You know, it's this, uh, instead of looking for distribution for an idea, this idea was an idea strictly about distribution, I think. And mm -hmm. I'm also a huge birthday person uh, and I know how special and important it can be. And it just felt like something that, you know, that we say that I would use and I do use it every morning. And so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because, you know, I've been into business development and sales. I think this is something which is very useful for revenue leaders as well. Yeah? And is it US only for now or 
uh, you know, have you have you rolled it out across? It's only U.S. for now. Uh, some of the ways that we find the birthdays are a little bit more difficult as we get into new country codes. There's like mm-hmm. a whole model basically that matches kind of phone numbers sometimes, and names sometimes, and a bunch of other stuff on your phone sometimes. And so we expect to expand, but currently we're only the U.S. Okay, got it. And and you also use a very sophisticated AI generated tool to scrape out all all the records. Uh, how how do you use the technology to you know, gather all the information? It wasn't called AI when we built it, but I guess it yeah. is now. Um, I would say that you know, or what it is, it's just straight up. Is there's a lot of public data on the internet. We didn't buy anything like secret or anything like that. But we have an amazing team of engineers that were essentially able to take all of this messy data that they're collecting kind of secretly about you and putting on on the internet, clean it up and serve it back in a way that you can use it. You know, one of the other things was, I remember I uh, I always find data on me on the internet. And uh, our take was if we can offer something, as long as it stayed free, if we can offer something free that kind of takes the stuff that already exists on you and allows you to get value from it, um, you know, we're not saving the world, but like, I feel like you're owed it. And so that's kind of how, how we did it. There are some tricks that we found just by mostly psychological things, like what signal, how close somebody is to you, but it's mostly using public data and then building this, this kind of confidence machine. Mm. Got it. And, and you, you mentioned about, you know, reminders. I was just wondering, you know, what sort of gift options can people access through birthday app and uh, how does it make it easier to, you know, um, uh, yep. gift? So, so coming up, we have, um, we're relaunching our gift store. It nice. is going to include flowers, chocolates, nice. uh, last second experiences. But the whole thing here is that most people plan, we actually did a huge, we the largest survey on how people think about birthdays, I think ever, which right. you'll see coming out uh, in, in the news. But most people, something like, I want to say 80, 80% of birthdays are planned for the week of. And so mm. sometimes it can be very difficult to get a gift in time. And so we try to hack that process where we know that you're going to be showing up in we make it so you don't kind of end up having to do something that doesn't seem very thoughtful. And so it'll cover food experiences, um, some really cool CPG products uh, for partners, but yeah. And it's one of those things where we're, it's a living store where depending on kind of what people are demanding, we can kind of figure it out, but there's a good chance you go by, you know, you can buy elsewhere as well. But we try to just make it as easy as possible to kind of be thoughtful. There should be a scheduling feature as well. So at some point, you can say, these people I have to get gifts for. We make sure you do not miss that day with uh, the gifts. Okay, got it, got it. And, you know, many people still rely on Facebook and, you know, calendar sync. But how, how, do, you, how do you gather all that, uh, you know, birthday information? Um, and, you know, what if Facebook stops you from, you know, gathering all that information? Is that We don't have... We're not uh, relying on any of those companies. Like we built, our model is pretty uh, self-driven as far as things go. So we're protected. That was like the whole the whole thing of the, the company was, can we build, you know, it's kind of, what's the old joke? It's like using a sledgehammer to hang a picture. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to use Facebook to remember a birthday. Like it, there's so much stuff there that like I don't want, that I don't need it. So we are, we're here to solve singular problems 
which is this birthday and showing up for your friends problem. And we believe that there is a monster place for all of these, for both people, but also these amazing companies that have built products everybody wants that, you know, one of the funny things that you'll see on the, the survey is that the number one way people decide where to get people like for gifts tends to be the exposure effect in that whatever they saw in the last two weeks ends up being kind of like the small universe of what they pick from, mm. which sucks because it's one of these things where like there's perfect gifts for people out there, but mm. it's just impossible to figure out when you're, when is the right time to approach them, especially mm. when it comes to birthdays and kind of personal events. And so we're, you know, we're doing this. So these, these products find the audience that actually wants them just at the right time. That stuff matters. The coordination problem is huge. Mm. Mm. Got it. And and I was just wondering, is it is the distribution approach more B two B focused, like uh, you know, parking up with companies for em employee rewards and recognition? Where, um, you know, and how did you get your you know first thousand users? You you mentioned you got it all organically, but how did how did you manage to do it? Yeah. Um. So to the first question, what we're seeing, we see a lot of real estate professionals as well as uh finance kind of money management professionals use this on their own phone to reach out to their customer base. We don't have a, like a B2B integration yet, um, but you'll be able to, you can use it for that. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, from the perspective of how do we get our first users, it just started with friends and then it grew. And then there were a couple organic TikToks that our user base put out that got us a lot of users. We get mentioned lists all the time too. Um, and yeah, so far that we have some ideas for some pretty targeted semi-organic. I think we'll get coverage some places for some really, you know, for some stories that I think are going to come out. Um, but yeah, and there is just, you know, people send, I don't know if you've seen the app lately. I assume you have, obviously, but you can send cards where like, I can take my face, put it on like a really ridiculous card that says like, happy birthday, let's catch up. And it's my face on a hot dog. And so you find that people send these cards and they're watermarked um, birthday app and people come back. And so there is a little bit of product, endemic product growth. Got it, got it. Super interesting. And and, and what's the revenue model like? Do you, do you take fees on, 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 on the gifts or, or from the brands? Thanks. Take fees on the gifts, um, as well as we have some partners that we're going to be doing some additional kind of things or pieces with, and then there will end up being an advertising component to the business that like, you know, we have all these amazing reminders. I think the average user basically opts in by choice. Like they pick out, I'm trying to do the math in my head. Uh, 42, they they opt into about 50 reminder emails for uh, different birthdays, not 50 people. It's about 15, 14 or 15 people, but 50 different times. Like remind me in two weeks, remind me in one week. And that real estate that like, you know, Rohit's birthday is coming up in two weeks and then you can yeah. throw flowers there with one click. You can schedule a delivery. That real estate is preemptively crazy for these brands. And so we're rolling out a feature that essentially is going to pair these in the future reminder dates with these these products that should from testing have you know pretty ridiculous conversion rates got it got it um and yeah you know especially uh, since you've been uh, you know a couple of startups i was uh, and we have a lot of founders who uh, in the early stage who are listening to this show 
What's the single biggest mistake founders make when they're trying to find a product market fit? So there was this great, I, I'm going to use like uh, something that I saw that I really liked, but to kind of back into a bigger point, but like, uh, I think his, is the guy who did um, Zenefits and is now doing Con- Conrad Parker, I think his name yeah, is, Conrad I want to say. Yeah. 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 He had this, he was talking about fundraising and he used, right. and he said something along the lines of, obviously it's important, but a lot of the time founders raise money like as they go, because you feel like an insane person showing up at your friend's houses and your family events and maybe 18 months or 12 months have passed and your business has changed a lot internally, but not really externally. And so you need this, like you need this thing to explain to people that you're making progress and a fundraising round is a really good way to explain that the business has grown or progressed, but it's most, a lot of it is for you to feel less like, you know, a loser or something when you're talking to everybody who has no idea what you're doing. And so I think in general, it's really easy, whether you're hiring too fast, whether you try to go raise money too quickly, whether you build a bunch of features, it's really easy to get caught up in feeling awkward about that. Sometimes this takes time and sometimes the growth is really lumpy where it's like, it'll feel like nothing's happening for nine months and then everything will happen. And so I think it's, it's never going to go away. The feeling of social pressure of like having to explain to people you're building your own business. But I think it's getting in touch with like what things are pushing you to make decisions because you feel, I mean, this is the most, uh, this is the most intellectually violent sport I can think of. Like you're building this thing in a room that nobody understands and you're having to explain it. And you're having to explain like how, how it's grown. And so really getting in touch with how you feel about where you're in the company and how that affects your decisions is a really, really big one. Also another fun one, because I imagine everybody's thinking about raising money is I always like the adage, if you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. A lot of mm-hmm. kids roll in and or people roll in and they, you know, they're like, we need this much money for this. And I find, unless you already know this person and they would back you kind of through anything, that it's a weird negative social signal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like dating, you know, you mm-hmm. don't want, you want to have your intentions, but if you state them overtly, there's something like, there's something that's not socially as acceptable there. Mm-hmm. And so you have to get really good, I think, at pushing for what you want without asking for it. Mm. In the beginning, I have mm. a bunch of a, a bunch of things, um, but yeah, those are the two that come to mind. Is just like be really understand um, what you're insecure about, what you're building the business, and just make sure that it's not driving decisions. And then. The other one is that like most of this is like a social dance. And so don't think, especially when it comes to fundraising, don't think about it. It's not a pursuit, like a a logic pursuit. Nobody's giving you money for completely logical reasons. Every one of these people, most of these people are either managing somebody else's money or, you know, they're managing their own, but they have an interesting relationship with it. And so understand it on kind of the emotional level when you go and do it um, and don't, it's it's really dangerous to like think about people making decisions based on logic. It almost never, ever, ever is the reason anybody makes decisions. I think mm. it's for everything, but for fundraising especially. Mm. Got it. And 
And what's a, what's your biggest piece of advice to founders when they're trying to find the the core target audience and you know customer discovery the right way, especially because founders want to target a lot of ICPs. So this is kind of the thing. I feel like people don't talk about it as much. This kind of goes to the feeling like shit where you build your company too. A lot of the biggest stories that you know, Airbnbs, Facebook, it reads as if they did some type of like magical, like car target customer building and they knew it and they went into it. What mostly normally happens is they do stuff and then something works that's not exactly that same idea. And then it takes them a pretty good amount of time to really understand why people like their product. Like it's growing. You'd be surprised how many of these giant growing companies have no fucking clue, excuse my language, mm. like why it's growing or some type of like 70% understanding um, because it's so complicated. Like it's, you can see the numbers, but the numbers tend to not always do the full kind of reasoning, unless you're in a very straightforward SaaS business. Like they tend to not always tell the whole story. And so what I'm getting at here is you just have to try stuff and talk to your customers and keep trying. The numbers will kind of tell you what's working, but don't be fooled into feeling bad about yourself if you don't fully understand why things work and why things don't work. Most of the big stories you know are historical revisionisms where mm -hmm. like way later they told the story as if, oh, we had this happen, A, you know, A happened, then B happened, and then it was obviously C. It is almost never that it's, you know, they find C two years later when they're telling the story on stage. But I would say there's quite literally no substitute for just going out there, talking to customers, getting your butt kicked. And yeah, also just trying, you know, one of the things that kind of gets in people's ways, I think, is you have this idea how the world works and you stick to your own logic. And it's tough because... You know, you, you think like everything has been earned by experience, so it has to be right. But like, I've been on projects before where it's completely irrational at like why people, you know, my brother is also an entrepreneur in the kind of sports card space. He's got a great company. It's called Rare One. Um, Rare, you can check it out, rareone.app, but it's basically it lists where all the most valuable cards are currently in the world. Like if they've come out of packs already or they haven't. Nice. And it's one of these things where the logical stuff, like it worked, people really like to track their cards, but some of the community stuff, just like hanging around in a chat room or whatever it is, tended to have the biggest lift on growing the audience. And even to this day, like we, we can kind of explain like why people like to do it. There's the obvious stuff like, Oh, they're just looking for a community. And like, these are their friends, but like, it's not clear how you scale that. Like, and so the answer is just try stuff. Like if anybody tells you they have some type of framework to really get to it, um, they're probably trying to sell you something. Hmm. And the one thing that I have seen that is helpful is there's a book called The Mom Test. I don't yeah. know if you've read it before. And so yeah. most people either don't care to uh, like understand for good reason, everyone's busy or you know, most abstraction is actually just bad decision and bad product. And so for the most part, unless it's a very technical thing, and even then you can kind of figure out explaining what you do to somebody. If they can't understand it pretty quickly, you're probably doing too much. Um, and so, yeah, I've always tried to 
to do that. Like this was really hard with birthday app, you know, our big, big, amazing magic miracle is that we know all the birthdays that you don't know. Yeah. And it sounds very simple the way I just said it there, but you'd be shocked. I even have investors on the cap table, I think, that believed it was a birthday app for storing birthdays that you knew, but it was so bizarre that we knew everybody's birthday when you opened up the app already that people didn't even perceive it as like that the app could possibly do it. And so as many times as I would explain it, they would just assume like it was, they were pulling from Facebook or they were pulling from like your, your, your uh, iPhone. And as many times as I explained it, it didn't hit with everybody. And so just working on, I always say that like when you have a conversation with this, uh, an investor or a friend or a customer, they're going to remember one bullet point, maybe two bullet points. And so figure out what is the sentence that you want them to walk away from. And bonus points, you can give them a sentence that's so exciting that they have to share it like it's a secret, but you're hmm. only going to get one sentence. So if you have to sit there and give them two or three things to remember, you're probably already screwed. Hmm. Got it. And, um, you know, Brandon, you've been into a couple of startups, but, uh, and quite successful ones, but does it, does your identity tie up with, you know, uh, with your previous startups and the success of the company? Uh, oh, you know, hell what... yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of these things, like everything, the grass is not always greener. It's nice that, you know, I have a, a good story about myself now yeah. in that yeah. I've had some successful startups and I do, I've learned some things via the successful startups but every single time is like extremely violent and extremely hard i would say one of the downsides of having successes is you tend to not you know when i was i did laurel and wolf man every press every time we got press every time we recruited somebody into the company i was going home like to my girlfriend with like the biggest smile and I was good. I was good for 48 hours or whatever, 72 hours. But it's like the bar for what is considered a success starts to, you kind of get the worst of both worlds sometimes in that you don't really kind of credit. You don't give yourself a lot of leeway for the stuff that is hard, but you've already done before. And so you're kind of fighting these larger expectations, even though it's the same work. I don't get, maybe I have more contacts when fundraising or doing sales or understand how to do less, you know, it's the old joke. You don't actually have to be really good at any of this stuff. You just have to not do stupid things. Mm. Like if you just, if you just don't do stuff that kills you, like you'll probably win over the course of a long period of time. And mm. so I've gotten better at some of those things just because I've done so many bad things or stupid things historically. But, you know, as hard as it for somebody trying to get attention um, as a new startup, you know, and it's not just commiserate, but the other side, when you start to do, when you had had success and your company is growing, but not growing to like something that was bigger than we did before, there's, you know, it can be very tough emotionally or it can be hard reflectively when you start to have that. So it's always hard. There is no, if it was easy, you wouldn't make as much money, number one. And uh, two, like you have a whole lot of people doing it. Hmm. And, and and how do you keep score of you know how how you're doing you know what does success really mean for you? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I got a big birthday coming up, and I think about that, or have been thinking about that quite a bit. But um, I think it depends. Um, you know, when I was in my first company, I was in my uh, I think in my late twenties, 
And it was about the money, like making as much money as possible. I loved the press. I loved all of that stuff. And the second company, it was about the team. It was about the product. It was about building like the right type of organization, one that I wanted to be a part of and that worked and grew and was, you know, like the energy was right in building it. And on the third one, it was trying something different and seeing how, if what kind of transferred over. And so from a scorecard perspective, I don't really have a great answer to it. I think it'll change with what you want from your life. I think, I guess this is like a little bit of a, a tangent, but one thing I will say, this is not a particularly popular thing in the days of you know mental health and stuff like that. I believe it's unreasonable wanting to do this kind of stuff. You know, I don't know that everybody's trying to fill a hole, but like the sticking with this stuff, um, I think over a long period of time is some motivation inside of all of us that's unreasonable. It's to prove somebody wrong, it's to, you know, not have a situation maybe that you grew up in that like whether it's financial or whether it's, you know, professional and you really need that kind of stuff to get through this because the act of doing it is unreasonable. There are plenty of ways, you know, once you build some skill sets to go out and have a life, a balanced life. And so you hear these guys, big VCs, talking about having to work late and stuff. I think it's less about the specifics of like working super hard. I just think you have to have an unreasonable reason to do this. And so it's why you kind of, you don't have to have like terrible mental health to do this kind of stuff. Like it's not a complete trade-off, but I do believe you have to understand that if you're, you're going to be in this, the fact that you chose yourself to do this means that you're trying to accomplish something that like is probably unbalanced in like how you spend your time. And I think understanding that um, and knowing that it's probably going to be slightly unhealthy um, is I just never seen somebody build something big without an unreasonable drive to, to, do, to do so. And so it's not a direct answer to your scorecard question, but I think that's a superpower. I think it's mm -hmm. like, you know, this is an endurance sport. Like yeah. being clever is nice, but the ones that win are basically the ones that stay alive long enough to kind of figure out something, get a little bit lucky, and then don't fuck up doing that one thing until you have a resolution. Mm -hmm. Got it. And, and especially in 2023, you know, uh, it's been a tough year, but what do you think would be, you know, some of the outcomes available for companies? Yeah, well, I mean, it depends. That's a, it's a wide stretch. I'm sorry if I'm getting too philosophical here. I think a lot about like what it takes to kind of build these things and why I love it and why some of my friends love it. And so, but I think it's important because I think that from outcome perspective, you know, I don't, I can't predict the future. If I did, I'd, you know, have statues. Um, but I think that, it's pretty straightforward what's going to happen next. You know, it's, if you follow the money, it's that interest rates are much higher all across the world. Yeah. And so it's going to mean less money in startups because people can just park their money and make in guaranteed interest rates. Startups will always be sexy. People never talk about this, but like, if you've got money, it's from like a social capital. It's just exciting. It's an exciting place to uh, invest. And it will almost always be a little bit of that. And so I think startups will always 
be overrepresented as like money comes in than it probably should be. Like if you're looking at it kind of from a return basis, but it's going to be a little bit harder uh, to do that, which means that companies are going to have to get to revenue quicker. Like everybody talks about, they're probably going to have to think about valuations a little bit differently. Um, And I think you're going to see, you know, a lot of these big businesses, if you look at Uber, if you look at like even smaller ones that like, uh, you know, our friend Conrad, you know, we were talking about before, you know, his benefits and stuff like that. They had a pretty specific playbook. They basically went into a market. They got a lot of money so they could change how the pricing worked temporarily and made it impossible for responsible kind of economic businesses to exist. And then eventually the money dried up and then they raised their prices back to what everybody else was mostly charging. But at that point they had a market and sometimes the investors, you know, they were the ones who had to pay for (laughs) that. (laughs) And sometimes the market uh, had to pay for it. And then sometimes both sides did or didn't. But I think what you're going to see is it's just going to be a little less crazy in the sense that like, don't get me wrong. There will always be crazy crazy money that exists um, for you. If you have a good enough idea, you can tell a good enough story. But I think you're just looking at like, you just have to kind of build a little bit more of a logically sensible business. Or maybe that's not it. You need a better story. You still will be able to do those big subsidy businesses. It's just going to be harder because I think there's less money. You're competing. Like these, all the people that were backing the companies in 2018, are now diversified elsewhere as well. So you have to convince them essentially, or the chain that, yeah, I hope I'm not being too abstract. This is like way high level. I feel like heady, you know, I don't know. It's not smart. I just, I feel like I'm, I can be more specific. I don't know. Yeah, no, uh, I I think, yeah, you know, a couple of outcomes for for companies could be, you know, they they would need to sell off the company. Uh, I mean, a lot, lot of lot of filing is happening, but uh, but especially, you know, a lot of companies do go under uh, when the co-founders fight. And w- what's your advice to founders when when it comes to you know selecting a co-founder? Woo! I've been in good co-founder relationships. I've been in less good co-founder relationships. Um. It's funny. If I knew this, I'd be, I would definitely go and be a marriage counselor more than I'd be a co-founder counselor because it's about the same. But I think that the one thing that has been consistent is there should be as little skill or responsibility overlap as possible. What ends up happening if you have a lot of responsibility overlap is you get resentment, whether it's somebody doing the thing that you shouldn't feel like should be your responsibility or worse, one person starts to take more of the stuff and feels like the other person. There's also this weird thing where, you know, when you have two people who have very different responsibilities, they also don't really understand as much what the other person does on a day-to-day basis, which the way that like the human mind works, I think makes it so if you don't understand it, you can't reflect on it and you can't be mad at it. And so, you know, if you have a technical co-founder and a sales co-founder, they can't, they don't really sit and be like, well, shit, I wish that he was better on that call because of X, Y, Z. And so if you don't kind of reflect on it, like I said, you don't have, you don't build resentment for them not doing as good a job. You still need to see results. And so when you don't have overlap, I think you don't evaluate each other 
as hard because both sides are unfamiliar to each other. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah. And so that would be one of them. And then also you should more or less know what an out, what outcome you're both looking for, yeah. you know, but that's really hard because companies change and companies change people as well. Yeah. Yeah. You'd be amazed at how, like somebody's ambition changes when a company takes off versus what they started off with. You know, you get all the stories like you know, the Airbnb founders where like they were literally just trying to rent out these rooms to start and, you know, yeah. then like become this big public company and like it changes you. And so I think it's really hard. And then uh, the, this is, this is now more of like a relationship one that I get in my own life, but you should understand. And this goes, if you're in a marriage or, you know, dating somebody, figure out how they fight. Like, mm. um, when they're upset, are they yellers? Um, are they passive aggressive? And I think just having an honest take about how they communicate when things aren't going well, will likely save you a lot of time and misunderstanding. And so those, those be my two figure out how they communicate when things aren't going as they had hoped. And then also try to get as little overlap as possible on what your responsibilities and skill sets are within the business. Got it. And, and just to follow up on that, do you think before you start a project, should you talk about, you know, what values uh, aligns and, you know, what is, what are the goals that you're looking for? Uh, does it make sense or, you know, it's more about. It's funny. Like it's one of these things that's really hard in that, like, I don't know if I asked you what the, what you loved about what makes a great relationship to you. And then I showed you the footage of, you know, the last 10 years of your life. My <laughs> guess is it wouldn't always match up. And so I think it's really hard to ask. You should ask people because it's always important, especially for like, you know, starting to build a place where like you guys can talk to each other. But I think in general, people have what they want to be from a values and outcome and then how they act. And often there's a, a bit of a disconnect and not by any fault of anybody's. It's just really hard to evaluate yourself, I think. And so, and sometimes if somebody says they're one thing and acts the other way and they truly believe that, it creates even more animosity because uh, it feels like you are misled even though no party was trying to mislead the other. I think that the only way to really do this, and it's kind of the same as finding customers in, in a startup, is it's why it's really hard to find a uh, co-founder when um, you just met them is like time. Time is the, the number one indicator on what somebody is. And even better if it's time plus, you know, difficult things and being really close to each other and just pay attention. Everybody tells you uh, via action, whether it's a partner, a romantic partner, a customer, they tell you what they are. You just like, you choose to listen and actually take them at face value. Or you choose to like you like we were talking about before, kind of rationalize. Well, this was because of this, but like people, yeah, yeah. It's a that's a long answer, but time and just getting dirty with people is the best way to figure out mm. what it is. And if they're a dick up front, excuse my language, or if they're dishonest up front, you can almost guarantee that like that is more or less uh, what you can what you can expect to see uh, moving forward. Yeah, uh, and and Brandon, you, you you raised a lot of money uh, in, in your previous startups. What what's the biggest piece of VC advice to founders that you find uh, is not is not correct, or you find it to be wrong? 
I got a bunch. Um, people think about funds as organizations, like, right. oh, they like this type of thing. Right. Most decisions within a fund are made by a small group of people and they're made individually and they tend to be reflective of that person's personality, what's going on in their life, what's in the news cycle. And so thinking about every investor you uh, talk to as an individual with individual motivations and individual uh, distractions and individual goals is a big one. Uh, firms don't exist, even though they want you to say they do. They do not. Everybody has. There's like an old joke in SaaS. There's only, I saw it on uh, Twitter. And I think it works for investment too. All products should be uh, built to either make sure somebody doesn't get fired or to get somebody mm -hmm. promoted. And I think that it works uh, for the same thing for investors. Um, especially as you get closer to early stage, I think that it's so hard to determine what's going to work. Right. What you're really trying to do is, you know, an investor's job when they go into a meeting with you is they're looking for every reason to say no specifically, because if they look for reasons to say yes, they'd have no money left over and it wouldn't work. And so they are actively, and it's smart, looking to disqualify you. And so your job is to, you know, not get disqualified over time with them. I'm trying to think what else. Those are some good ones. Um, very few investors will invest without a relationship. No, that's not true. Let me take that back. Um, most investors, which everybody knows, will invest when other people are investing. It yeah. is very, very hard. And so people go out there and they do this thing where they're trying to get around together. But really what ends up happening is you find, oh, I know what I can talk about too. I'll give you one more after this one, is your goal as, an, as, as a company. Um, and everybody's, you don't have to be this charismatic. I know I'm pretty high energy. You can probably guess like, I, but there's, you know, there's introverts, there are numbers people, but your goal is to get somebody so excited about what you're doing that they text their friends that like their investor friends that like, I found this thing and you know, their way to brag is to say, you should check this out. Mm -hmm. And so you should be thinking about, especially early stage, the emotions you create and not your business is not a business at that point. It's an idea. Even when you get to the A and the B, you're still selling this idea of potential. And so, people fall into this trap of like, you need this much revenue, need that. In some spaces it is, you know, there are benchmarks that really kind of dictate, you know, pricing and stuff like that, but you are, it's an emotional pitch. You are not building, building a business and raising money are two pretty different skill sets. And so your job is to get one person emotionally excited about you or your space or your growth and you pick one thing you can't you don't want to convince people of three things at once there's yeah. almost always one thing that gets them hot and then they bring in their friends and if you're trying to get a competitive round you know once you get one person excited or nervous or whatever and you tell all the people in their social group you'll start to see that you don't actually have to convince anybody like mm. it's and so think about this process this goes back to the first thing i said is that you're pitching an individual with their own individual stresses and goals and uh, hangups. And your job is to quickly understand what those things are and get them emotionally invested in what you're doing. If you can figure that out, you'll never have trouble in, uh, raising money in any market anywhere.
Got it. Got it. Super interesting. And um, yeah, you know, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Oh, um, the first one that comes to mind is an old school short book. It's called The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. I think it's Trout and Reese. Do you know it? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard. And so it's a book on positioning, but I think it's something more. I think it is underappreciated. It's this idea that See, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get uh, a little bit abstract here again, so stop me. But it's this idea that every decision people make is relative, right? Like, there's my favorite was I think it was budget when Avis or Hertz was the big big rental car company, and they were just in second place, right? They could not figure out anything. It was like a mad scramble for the second. And they created an ad campaign which was we're second, but we try hard, right? Mm. And it was this honest take. They weren't trying to front. They weren't, they're kind of the Pepsi to the Coke, right? And I think this understanding that the way everybody processes information is relative to what they already know, not only can help you position a business or a fundraise round, but if you really think through how you're communicating to people, whether you're recruiting, whether you're raising money, whether you're trying to talk to customers, it starts to make you understand like, where's their head now? How would they perceive us in addition to, or like relative to the truth they have right now? And so I go back to that book probably two or three times a year. It's got so many marks in it that like, uh, it's probably hard to read some of the pages, <laughs> but that's the one that comes to mind. There are a bunch of really good ones though. Got it. We'll put that in the show notes. And you know, if you could go back in time when you started about the app, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? I'm going to say this for all apps because it doesn't only apply to, to birthday app. Um, you know, there's obviously, you get Paul Graham saying, build something that people want. And I think that's right. It's never that easy because often you don't get a large enough audience to even test the thing, if that makes sense. And so sometimes it's hard to even tell if it's something somebody wants because you don't even get the attention to do it. But if you're going to build something, and this is build it in a place where people are spending money. It's really, really, really hard to build a product that isn't part of some type of exchange of cash, right? Um, that goes for consumer, but it's also SaaS. Like if you know they're spending a ton of money on hosting or you know they're spending a ton of money on invoicing, right? Yeah. Build something that can be looped in to the same, like the same budget line item as that thing that's already being spent. Because what you end up doing if you don't do that is you have to have the building two companies. You have to build an actual product and then you have to build essentially a demand for, or like you have to build a, build a process in which people spend money on something they never did before. And so build close to an ocean, an existing ocean of money. Don't try to invent one. It's very expensive and very difficult. Hmm. Got it. And, and do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Oh, I want less, less all those things. Um, but this one's more of a personal preference. I've gotten into the habit of doing phone calls instead of, I'll tell you what, you know what I would say? This is a good counterintuitive one. And it's very difficult in the world we're in now. If you get an opportunity, whether it's fundraising or recruiting or a business partner, do everything you can, everything to meet them in person. 
I think one of the things that has become really difficult with Slack and Zoom and phone calls is it's like one of these things. You have an online friend, you meet him in person and like you learn more in 45 minutes than you did in, you know, five years because there's all these tiny signals that people send to each other when they're in person, approval, disapproval, like what they like, what they don't like, like what type of personality they are that like you will get more from being a person with somebody than you will and all the other ones combined. And so I'd even take it as far as like, here's a good book. You guys, have you read the Sam Walton biography? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And so, yeah, he talks about every time they interview somebody who worked with them, they're like, that boy was crazy. He'd be on a honeymoon or his vacation. He'd stop at the store and ask them uh, talk to the manager and he'd walk the floor. And like everybody said that he would fly out to people and I think the only way to get enough information about somebody's experience that like you might be able to actually internalize it is to see them tell it and figure out where like it was important and where it wasn't. So fight for more in-person meetings. It could change your life. Also, it's an easier way to make personal relationships with people. I think that can last a lot longer. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, uh, just wanted to uh, want to understand what's the best way people can reach out to you and know more about birthday app yeah i'm brandon at birthday.app or i'm on twitter at at bk senior um and yeah i'm pretty responsive like uh i'm out there and let's see what do we need um we are now building our gift store and we are looking for um partner brands to go go in there it's going to be, we're only going to offer one or two per category. And okay. so it's going to be a small gift store. We believe that less is more with this kind of stuff. And we obviously have a very, very uh, high kind of conversion uh, experience for people. And so we have some great kind of brands now, but we're always looking for more. And we have potentially an experiment going called Magic Button, which will allow our birthday calendar to live in partners apps. And we'll create the same relationship and experience within their own app. We have a couple of people who have asked us to do it. We haven't chosen who we're going to launch it with, but we will eventually. And so, yeah. And then if anybody ever wants, um, you know, no, I'll leave it at that. Got it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. This is super fun. I'm so glad we did it. I keep doing it. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.